You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Monday, July 27, 2020, just after market closed in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, joined shortly by Ed Harrison from Washington, D.C. But first, here's Jack Farley with today's stories. Thanks, Ash. The rally in gold continued today, with the precious metal up over 1.8% in dollars, standing at 1936 as of the time of this filming. This marks a significant melt-up in gold, which is up over 9% over the past month, and over 30% since its lows in mid-March. This is an all-time record for gold in absolute terms, although adjusting for inflation, gold is nowhere close to where it was during the 1980 rally. That rally occurred as real yields hit an all-time low, meaning that inflation was not just devouring all interest payments on treasuries, but it was taking a significant bite out of the principal as well. In her expert view, Lynn Alden discusses why gold performs so well when real yields are negative. That comes out tomorrow, so stay tuned. Lynn also looks at M2 per capita as a relevant metric, since investors flock to gold as a safe haven as the money supply expands. So with negative real yields and the Fed committing to expanding M2 for at least the next year, there's definitely an interesting macro backdrop for gold. But there are also some interesting flow dynamics that are flashing even more bullish signals. Looking at the futures market, open interest isn't as high as it's been during other rallies, indicating that it isn't speculation in the futures markets that's driving gold sky high. No, there's actually a tremendous demand for physical gold, from family offices to hedge funds to retail investors to ETFs like GLD that have seen massive inflows and have to buy physical gold to balance out their NAV. And then look at this chart of how many futures contracts are actually being converted into physical deliveries rather than being rolled over or settled in cash. It's at a record high. So if the retail and institutional players are going long, who's on the other side of the trade? Well, it's the swap dealers, the so-called bullion banks who borrow gold from central banks and then sell it out on the futures market. They have a net short position totaling over $39 billion. That's the highest it's ever been. They've been betting on the gold price to stabilize, but with every attempt to put a lid on the price appreciation, they create rising opus interest in the futures market. So with gold, you not only have a compelling macro backdrop, the plumbing of the gold market as well indicates that there could be a genuine run on bullion if all of these bullion banks have to cover their short positions at the same time. Should be an interesting few months coming ahead for the pet rock. And with that, let's go back to Ash and Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Jack. Welcome back, Ed. Happy Monday to you, Ash. Happy Monday. So let's jump right in. As Jack said, gold at its highest level ever in nominal dollars. In nominal dollars, obviously, but you know, inflation adjusted, it's actually lower now than it was in 2011-12 and lower than it was in uh, when it had its uh, peak, I think it was in 1980 from before, but still nonetheless in nominal dollars, 
it's uh, it's the highest level it's ever been. And I have you know some thoughts on three different theses as to why it might be higher that people are banding about. So what are you thinking? And I saw, as you pointed out in credit write-downs this morning, uh, yields are negative in real terms across the curve, uh, just as they were the last time. Right. That That is one of the three. And, you know, today, I, I actually, I, I, there are five macro themes that I want to talk about, gold being one of them. That's the first one, since Jack was talking about that in the intro. But I think the first thing is, is, is that really, when you think about uh, gold, let's not talk about inflation first and foremost, but I think this is the Len Alden thing that Jack was talking about is negative real interest rates. That is, is, is that when interest rates uh, after inflation are losing you money, then uh, uh, holding something that is a store of value that doesn't uh, have a, a liability against it makes a lot more sense. Uh, that, you know, it doesn't return an interest rate, but what does it matter when you're losing money after inflation anyway? So I think that that's one thesis as to why gold is bid up, because now if you look at it, every single developed economy, the UK, all of the Eurozone, Japan, they're all having negative rates after inflation across the curve out you know, to 10 years and beyond. So uh, gold looks good uh, from that level. Let me give you two other theses that people are talking about. One is the buy anything uh, thesis. That is, is the concept that all asset prices are up. I mean, if you think about it in U.S. dollars, in the U.S., housing's up, oil's up, uh, uh, stock prices are up, high yield is up. All the asset prices are up. So why wouldn't you have precious metals, gold and silver up as well? So that also makes a lot of sense. Uh, the last, I think, I would say uh, is about inflation or inflation expectations. And for me, this is where the dollar comes into play. It's that uh, the drop in the dollar is a bit of a corroboration of the concept that inflation expectations are up and that, uh, you know, th that the dollar is weak and therefore gold is strong and therefore other currencies are stronger. So I think that... Um, you know, the next thing after gold is currencies and the U.S. dollar. Yeah, I believe the uh, headline quote in uh, in credit write downs this morning was the dollar is getting smoked. Yeah, it, it definitely the dollar is getting smoked. So the concept that the dollar is going to be a strong currency is off the table now. And that's good on some level in the sense that you can think of this as a liquidity thing. That is, is that if the dollar is really strong, either the U.S. economy is outperforming on a, on a huge level or you're in a liquidity crisis. And we're not in a liquidity crisis now. And the fact that the dollar is weak would suggest, therefore, that uh, that's positive. This is all, this, we have a reflationary impulse to the economy. Uh, and so the reflationary impulse to the economy is being seen through dollar weakness that, get, that lets EMs off the hook. The euro is strong because their economy is, is stronger. It's rebounding um, better in, at this particular juncture than the United States. And so the dollar is weak. Yeah. The, the, for me, the interesting bit is about rate policy. That is, is, is that when I think about the bond market vigilantes, what, the paradigm that I have in my mind is about the sovereign monetary policy when a you have sovereignty in terms of your monetary policy, then the central bank is a monopoly supplier of reserves. So to the degree that you aren't happy with the financial repression that is 
a part of negative real interest rates, financial repression basically is negative real interest rates, then your vigilantism is not expressed in terms of rates. It's expressed in terms of currency. That is, is that the monopoly supplier of reserves can basically pen with unlimited reserves the rates for treasuries or what gilts or whatever currency area you're talking about at whatever level it wants because it has unlimited firepower. And so to the degree that you have a certain amount of revulsion associated with that, then that's going to manifest itself in currency terms, not in rate terms. And the perfect example I use for that is if you think about 2018, the UK. So in the UK in 2018, we saw a bottoming of inflation. Inflation started to rise. But the central bank was saying, we're not going to do anything about that because we have Brexit, that whole thing that was keeping uncertainty. There's no way we're going to to, uh, raise rates. And so you had negative real interest rates across the curve. and the nominal rate for uh, across the curve was low. It wasn't low just at the um, overnight rate. It was low across the curve. Why? Because the central bank said they were going to keep them low. And so people uh, couldn't bid them up because the central bank has unlimited firepower in, a, in pound sterling to be able to go against that. So what happened is, is that the currency gave way. And it continued to give way, and it's and and it the ster- and sterling is a weak currency even today for exactly the same reason. So the point is, is is that you know dollar weakness uh, is also a sign that uh, people are fleeing the U.S. currency area because the U.S. economy is weak, even though it's actually the fact that uh, you would think that rates would go up. They have not gone up. That's because the Fed is pinning rates at a low level, and therefore people are using the currency as a release valve. Yeah. What does it suggest to you about expectations about uh, about future inflation in terms of the the burgeoning, uh, I shouldn't say burgeoning, I should probably say continuing to ever expand further federal deficit and debt? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that what people always say is that uh, rates will go up. If the deficit goes up, rates will go up. But we, as I said, you know, with the UK, we already knew that they had huge deficits and rates didn't go up. And now we have huge deficits and rates haven't gone up. So it, any sort of negativity about that will be expressed in, in currency terms. So I think that uh, everyone's running deficits, massive deficits now. So it's hard to say to what degree the uh, people fleeing from the dollar is representative of the budgetary situation. I would say that it's much more reflection of relative strength of the economic rebounds, and also uh, um, the it's also of um, the fact that uh, people don't want the dollar anymore. There's no there's no safe haven bid because there's a, a currency crisis or a, a, a liquidity crisis. Yeah, you know, that ties really nicely into what Greg Weldon said uh, on his live with Max Weefe. Uh, basically, de- Greg is talking about a 50-year bubble uh, in credit uh, and the dollar, uh, increasing dollar risks, dollar debt risks, uh, talking about precisely what you just said, how the Fed simply will not let the dollar appreciate. Uh, and he's potentially saying that uh, there's a there's a possibility of DXY at 70 and gold at 2000, which he was prescient on, we're moving in that direction very quickly. 
Yeah, 2000 is a lot easier a call than the DXY 70. Now, DXY well, he called 70. 2000, in fairness to Greg, he called 2000 earlier. Uh, so yes, but it's still a bigger spread from where we are right now. Right, yes. So yeah, DXY 70, that would be a very different uh, world than the one that we're living in. That was very interesting. But you know, let's, let's go back to, uh, you know, April when I talked about um, European uh, outperformance because of COVID-19 and the COVID-19 response. That that has definitely become, that's come true. That prediction is true. The question is, is, you know, what does it mean in terms of markets? Um, so before we even talk about the European versus the U.S. Uh, differential economically or even in terms of markets, let's just think about what's happening in U.S. markets, because you were talking about this today before we got on about the the differential if you go down the four major indices if you look at for instance uh the nasdaq you look at the s p you look at the dow and then you look at the russell 2000 there's a huge spread there in year-to-date returns right yeah absolutely massive ed uh dow jones industrial average uh for the year year to date minus 6.84 percent nasdaq composite positive 17.43%. I mean, an absolutely massive swing. Uh, and the S&P 500 up 0.27% on the year, huge differential from the Dow and the Russell uh, final outlier here, minus 11.1% year to date. These are huge imbalances between the major US equity market indices. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, I mean, going back to the tie between a dollar weakness and, uh, and economic weakness. I think it's interesting that you have that much of a spread in terms of the bid. You, you could say that some of it is speculative fervor, right? But or you could call it uh, rebalancing, et cetera. But why would you have a spread of that nature with many of those uh, places still down if we were in the middle of a a, um, a, a rebound? That is, is that the United States is going to rebound uh, majestically from uh, the lows in the second quarter. It sounds to me like the stocks that are represented by the Russell 2000 and by the Dow Jones, many of which are value, uh, you know, bank stocks, industrials, et cetera, they're not going to do well. The market's basically telling you that there's a differential because you have weak growth. And to me, that ties right back into the story about the US dollar being weak. Uh, we were talking before we got on about this in terms of the death cross. I, I, I put up a tweet earlier today because I saw something that David Rosenberg put out with the 50-day moving average versus the 200-day moving average that now uh, the, the, the shorter time frame average is below the, there's the cross between those two averages, which shows you the, the dollar DXY absolutely plummeting. And that's not a good sign in terms of resistance to the downside. Yeah, and DXY spot going through them both. It's a great chart because it shows people exactly what these these moving averages are meant to do, which is to smooth out uh, recent moves. And you can see that differential between the 50 and the 200 day moving average. And then when you see the actual spot on DXY 
plummeting down through it. It is suggestive of exactly what you said, significant weakening in it. I don't think we're getting to 70 anytime soon. I think Greg Weldon's call is more of a long-term, uh, decades-long uh, type of march. But it does suggest that there's at least short-term weakness uh, in that bid right now. You know, and to pick up on your point, it seems to me like it's the relative outperformance uh, of the big cap tech stocks in the NASDAQ that are pushing it higher. You know, another point that Weldon made unrelated, I guess I just watched it, so I'm sort of intrigued by it, but was that this is what we're seeing is, uh, I think his quote was, you're taking a, you're taking a sledgehammer to brick and mortar, right? There are significant durable pattern changes that are happening in consumption right now. I can see it in my life. I can see it in my friends and family's lives. We simply just don't go out as much. Nobody wants to be in a shopping mall. You know, I find myself buying ivory soap on Amazon, right? They're just these durable pattern changes in the way that we consume. Uh, our lives are, are merging in the virtual. You and I right now are having this conversation over Skype. We're not in the studio. We're not down in Chelsea having this conversation. We're doing it from our, uh, from our apartments, from our houses. And these are really durable realignments. And the winners here ultimately uh, are the big cap tech stocks. Now, the question hey, that by I, the way, when you talk about Chelsea, you know that they made it into the Champions League uh, uh, last, you know, last night, yesterday, or what was it on Saturday uh, that they won? You, you saw them against Wolverhampton. It was good. I don't know what a Wolverhampton is, and I'm <laughs> I'm baffled by the fact that they still play after the championship game. That is perhaps like even more perplexing to me than ties. Because when you said Chelsea, immediately I had to think. I had to think to the uh, you know football team Chelsea that you know uh, I, I'm a Chelsea supporter. I know that people they're going to be wigged out by that because they like Liverpool or whatever it is. But I just thought I'd throw that in their ass. Yeah. By the way, while we're talking about sports, there's a story that that I is I find to be disconcerting and and and. Um, and it's like the car wreck you can't stop watching this. You know, Florida Marlins, 11 of 33 players and two coaches just tested positive for COVID. Suspe the uh, Tonight's Yankees games, uh, Yankee and Marlins games have been suspended. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, this was something that this weekend I was really enjoying kicking back watching baseball constantly. Had it on my left computer monitor while I was doing work. It was just like a nice getting back to normalcy feeling. And here we are once again, with it getting pulled. What's interesting to me is I've, I've got a buddy, a guy named Per Bierman, who's a reporter who covers hockey. And he covers hockey, Ed, the way that we obsess about markets, every sort of little gyration in it. And he said to me a week ago, listen, I know you're a baseball fan, but the NHL looked into precisely the type of schedule that MLB is going to do. And it's, it's, they found it was too dangerous. They had to, they had to pull it because the travel was just too problematic. So I don't know if this is just an interesting story for sports fans, a difference between the way two leagues are handling it. But, you know, the, the, the NHL is locked down in Toronto at Edmonton. They've got a bubble surrounding their players. Nobody's leaving. It seems to be working so far. Major League Baseball, it's like, you know, two days into the season and we're already suspending games for COVID. It's an ominous sign. And I'm curious if you think that story is something that's uh, that has, there's a broader moral to be told. There is. I mean, uh, the broader moral is, is that the virus is still raging out of control in the United States. I mean, the, the numbers are actually rolling over in the South and in the West. If you look at the case counts, the numbers are down marginally from their highs. They're still rising in the Midwest and it, they're not that big in the Northeast because uh, they've crossed the curve. But you know, they are rolling over, but there's, you know, there's still a lot of virus out there versus in Europe, as an example, what, you know, I was talking about COVID and, you know, the UK was one of the, the, the worst uh, for COVID in, in Europe, 
but they were able to finish their season with no major outbreaks amongst the teams. They finished all 38 games. They're 38, uh, 36 games, or whatever that have been uh, finished in Serie A, where Juventus took their ninth championship in a row. There were no major outbreaks there either. That's another league in a country that was hard hit. So the United States is an outlier. So yeah. it does make a difference. This goes exactly to what we were talking to with regard to the difference between the U.S. and and your real question is is you know what's what does that mean in terms of performance? Because when you think of who's benefiting, as you were saying before, you're talking about big tech. You know, there are durable changes in how we've done things. And when you think about those durable changes happening in Europe, as an example, if they're going to be outperform coming out of uh, the lockdowns. Does that actually help big tech in the United States more than you might anticipate? You know, the likes of Amazon, as an example, which is big in the UK, France, Germany, places like that. Because when you look at the indices for Europe, like the Euro stocks, it's very highly concentrated in old tech. That is old uh, industrial banks, uh, you know, retail, brick and mortar retail, et cetera. And as you were saying, the Dow is down year to date. The Russell 2000s down year to date. Those are the kinds of stocks that you see in Europe. So it may not be the case that you get outperformance because of this durable change in consumption habits. Yeah. You know, the other question that that sort of naturally begets, and I'm a technophile, I love technology, I'm a great supporter of this progress. But really, what happens when we live in a world? when the only people making money are in Silicon Valley, right? They're, or, in, or in Washington state. What, what happens to an economy when you have that much concentration of wealth, that much concentration of data, that much concentration of power? It's not good for Main Street and it's not good for consumers to see that massive, massive outperformance of one small sector of the economy. It reminds me a little bit of, uh, I guess they call it the Dutch disease, when you have the natural resources curse that a nation that's very wealthy uh, typically in oil and natural gas, massively outperforms in a single sector. And it's absolutely dismal uh, for income inequality. It's dismal for social cohesion. There are just a whole series of problems that arise. I'm not sure that's a question that has an easy answer, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that comes to mind for me, my immediate thought is basically it's about uh, what I would call the um, you know uh, redistribution. That is, is, is that as soon as you see that, it, it'll, it'll get to a point where people are just like, that's enough. We're, we're, you know, we're going to increase taxes. We're going to break up these companies. We're going to re-regulate, et cetera. So I, I think these companies can only get so big before they're hegemonic in a way that uh, makes them um, too, big to, too big to continue, not too big to fail, too big to, uh, you know, to regulate. Too big so, to succeed. Too big to succeed. Exactly. And so yeah. I think that, you know, uh, there's going to be a re-regulation of big tech coming, not just in Europe, but also probably in the United States as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about if you think about in Europe, uh, the the incentive structure, they, they in Europe and Brussels have all the downsides that we have uh, to having these massive uh, tech companies, but none of the benefits. Right. They're not benefiting economically uh, from the massive outperformance of the U.S. tech sector. Um, and, uh, so I would expect, and also, 
um, um, red state governors, I suspect, will begin to regulate. I think it was Roger McNamee on our platform who made that case about Brussels and red state governors being the two potential adversaries of uh, the tech sector because of just the massive degree of concentration of wealth and all of the challenges that are are distributed from that. Perhaps right on pace with this, uh, or at least parallel to the conversation, Bitcoin now above 10,000 for the first time since uh, since early June, nearing 11,000 here as we film rising dramatically throughout the day. 2019 high was 12,734. So moving at least in that direction. It seems almost like a paradigm shift uh, for Bitcoin, almost as if, you know, it's consolidated its position at this level and is now ready for the next move upward. Uh, I mean, that's how I'm an outsider looking in. You're more in the space. What do you think about crypto in terms of what these numbers mean? You know, at risk of sounding a little bit flippant, I I always, and I think most people in the space find the short-term gyrations uh, to be absolutely baffling. Uh, I I think this is probably something of a of a diversification uh, bid. You see uh, the dollar selling off, gold rising. It kind of makes sense that people are looking for an alternate off-the-grid store of value. I'm ultimately, uh, as you might imagine bullish uh, for the long term on these assets and and this whole asset class um, but in terms of uh, in terms of whether or not this is a durable move I mean you know you can speculate on the technical factors but that's not really the way that I approach the space right now you know I was telling you that there were five things that were on my mind I think we covered uh, most of them we covered gold we covered uh, the US dollar and rates I think that we talked about uh, Europe, we talked about coronavirus to a certain yep. degree there as well just now. And uh, but I want to talk about the stimulus because yeah. obviously uh, to combat uh, the lockdown and then also the unemployment and so forth, we've had uh, stimulus. And to me, there is a potential policy error that's coming forward. A lot of people don't know this, but if you look at the way that jobless claims work, they're consistent with uh you know, if if the if the coronavirus uh, pandemic uh, unemployment assistance goes through the end of the month, the last week that's eligible for that, the, just the way that it works bureaucratically, is this past week. That is the 25th and the 26th of the last days before you get to a week that ends in August. So literally right now, as you and I are speaking, people right. are not, have had their unemployment assistance lapsed. So that's $600 that everyone's talking about. It's not happening for this week for all of the people who are dependent upon it. What right. is that going to mean to the economy? I think it's going to mean bad things for the U.S. economy. Yeah, and it's they're not losing all of it. They're just losing the additional incremental 600. And the way it works, I believe, is there's like a two-week lag. So you're, they're still going to get paid out the additional money. But to your point that it's already ended in terms of actually the weeks that you're going to be compensated for at the new PUA level have just ended. You know, the other thing that the article that you sent me was a great article in Barron's uh, that pointed out that the, the the number, the estimate has now risen. Uh, when we were talking about this last week, it was 25 million. And now the new estimates are 32 million. I did uh, some a conversation with Max uh, where we talked about Miss Shedlock, who had this 30 million call in, uh, you know, a week early uh, looking at the numbers. And now it's risen again to 30 2 million people. There are going to be significant processional effects here. I mean, you know, the one person's income is the next person's revenue. And when that begins to taper off, there are going to be processional effects throughout the economy and it can be significant. 
And, you know, the guy who wrote that article in Barron's actually wrote a book uh, with uh, Michael Pettis, who's an economist in China, about trade wars being class wars. His name's Matthew Klein. I'm looking to actually get them in a peer-to-peer interview talking to each other about this book that they wrote together. So I think that would be interesting. I know that you're looking to get Miss Shedlock onto the program some as well. Haven't had him uh, on Real Vision. He might have something to say. It might be good for the daily briefing if we could have him because I think you said Miss Shedlock. He he called it that the numbers were even higher than we had anticipated. Yeah, and he laid out the case really, uh, really clearly in in just doing the basic arithmetic and putting it together when everyone else seemed to be behind the curve. So definitely looking to get him on. I think he'd be a great guest. So, I mean, you know, just to wrap up how I'm thinking about having gone from gold to stimulus, I really think that, you know, um, the the way that markets are playing out, a a lot of it is is reflationary in nature. That is, is that the U.S. dollar is low. uh, There's tons of liquidity to be pumped into the system. All of that says that uh, the liquidity crisis that we had in March is long gone. Asset prices can rise. But the I would say the. the fly in the ointment is that we could have a massive policy error coming forward. This $600 going away for or being reduced at a minimum for you know 30 million people, that's a lot of money. Uh, yeah. That's a lot of consumption. And that could have a rolling impact, not just on you know the first order impact, but the second order and the third order impact. We just have to see how it plays out. Again, as I always say, just going back to my time frame, uh, September and October. These things don't happen overnight. It's going to snowball into that time frame just as we're going back to school. Uh, I'm I'm somewhat bullish on the ability for this second curve to be crossed because the numbers are rolling over by the time we get back to school. But, it, you know, we're in a dicey period now and uh, no one knows what's going to happen in, in a month and a half. Yeah, I think you said it exactly right, Ed, that that's a lot of consumption. That money that's going out is getting spent because the folks who are collecting unemployment, you know, they need that money to 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 do to basically make ends meet. So everything that comes in goes out the door. And if it goes out the door, it means it's getting reinjected back into the economy. Multiplier effects, seeing that roll off potentially definitely has some downside impact to the US economic picture. Yeah. So uh unfortunately we'll have to end on that bad note, but uh, great, uh, great to talk to you. Always enjoy, uh, you know, starting out my week uh, with the Real Vision Daily Briefing with you, Ash. Yes, me too, Ed. It's a pleasure to see you again. Take care. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.